big tree up because John had to take me to the hospital and he wouldn't get it done. So if you're available tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, we have a good time putting up all our stuff for the holidays. All right, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This will be hard for me to do. I usually have to have my hands available to speak, and I'll do the best I can. I may have to throw them here, and you just have to listen real hard so you don't miss anything. All right, I want to pray because what I'm going to share with you today, I'm going to, uh, this passage of Scripture, and I, I've, I've taught a lot of classes, uh, preached many sermons. I was joking this morning with my 930 class that I've got filing cabinets full of this yellow legal pad with all every message, every lesson I've ever taught since 1984 I've got. And I got these from the Apostle Paul, the original legal pads. And so I've, the Smithsonian has contacted me. They'd like to have them when I pass away. But anyway, I've got everything is written down. I got it all. Now, having said that, I forgot what I was talking about, but it's not, it's not important. Uh, this week, I think Stan's got another one. We're going to try again. But what? I gave it to Jim Gentry. All right, we'll continue. Uh, Stan, Stan, I'm going to make it with this one today. Don't worry about it. I know you got other things to worry about. I'll handle I will make it through. All right. What I studied this week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, is the story. Paul is sharing his heart as an apostle commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, as a pastor, as a believer, about this incredible opportunity and privilege that God had given to him to teach, to preach, to live out the Word of God. And I, uh, I've been employed by this church for 27 years. I've been a believer since 1970, and I was never as moved by the Holy Spirit as I was this week sitting in my little office over here in Ewing Place going through this scripture and convicted by God by many things, encouraged by God by others. Uh, I had some very negative things that I was confronted with this week. Uh, not, not so much about me personally, but just some things that that Satan would, could use if, if I'm not careful to depress me. And I really think it's because what I'm going to share with you today is so important. And it may not come across that way to you, and it may not get out to you the way the Holy Spirit got it into me. I'm praying that it does. But I want us to look at this phrase, God's indescribable gift, as we begin to look forward to Christmas. We're going to start a series next week on history meeting hope, looking at Christmas but I want to kind of share with you today, wrapping up what we've been talking about, about giving over the last few weeks, and then the, the idea of who we are, but from, from a personal level, how someone who gets the privilege of being a pastor, how special a deal it is, and what it really means. And, and uh, I can already tell it's going to be difficult for me. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. I, I know personally there is nothing more special Nothing more precious in my life than just picking up the Bible and beginning to read and pray about and, and say, Lord, what is it that you want me to take away from this passage? What is it as a pastor you want me to share with your people? You've given me the privilege of teaching and, and leading. Lord, it is a, a tremendous responsibility. And I simply pray today as we look at this incredible chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that we will focus on what a high honor it is to share with anyone and to stand before anyone and share with them the indescribable gift. And we pray in the name of the one who is that gift, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was reading a story this week about a, a couple, and I was sharing this with my family over the holidays, and I just kind of ran across it as I was preparing this message. 
You know, sometimes we think as human beings, man, if, if I could just get rich, everything would be fine. If I could win the lottery, if somebody would leave me a, a ton of money, if I could just find something like that show, what's that show we were joking about watching where the guys, they, they uh, is it pawns, what's it called? What? Pawn stars or something. Where they, they, they buy these um, like storage units. You bid on them, you go to an auction, you buy a storage unit, and then you go through it and you try to, hopefully you find something worth of great value, and 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 sometimes they they make a lot of money, and sometimes they make a little money, sometimes they lose money. But there, it's it's all kinds of things in life. You watch people gamble. We were watching an old rerun of that uh, that stupid show with Howie Mandel. Um, deal or no deal? Thank you. And you see these people, guys, got you know, we'll give you three hundred thousand dollars. I just got to go one more time. I just got to go one more time, and they walk away with like twenty-five bucks or ten thousand dollars. If you if you look at three hundred, and suddenly you got ten. Ten doesn't seem like a lot. Ten to me be really good, but it's always that that mentality. One more, I just got to one more roll. I got to try one more time. If I could just get rich, everything would be fine. Just if suddenly I could just get this incredible, somebody would just drop all this money on me. Well, I was reading a story about this couple. They 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 were cleaning out or moving or something, and they took a bunch of stuff to the dump to throw it away. And while they were at the dump, they saw this this headboard from the back of a, somebody had thrown away, like a headboard, footboard from a bed. And they just it was sitting there at the dump. And they said, well, that's, that's really pretty beautiful. Let's just take that home. We'll, we'll refinish it. And we'll use it for our bed. So they take it home and they begin to refinish it. And it seems really heavy to them. And, and they're just messing with it, trying to get it ready. They're going to clean it up. They're going to refinish it. And the guy pops the end of the headboard off. And he looks inside. And someone has stuffed both sides of the headboard full of gold coins from the 1800s. Well, suddenly they were incredibly wealthy from something they found at the dump. Now, we'd all like to do that, wouldn't we? So today we'll all be, take, we'll all be hiding at the dump, hoping somebody will throw away an original copy, a copy, the original of the Constitution of the United States, and something exciting like that. Let me explain to you. I really believe, and this is my heart, we've been talking about giving for a number of weeks. We're not talking about that today. But I honestly believe, knowing Randy Lockley, that God would not endow Randy Lockley with millions of dollars because Randy Lockley would tend to do what? Just like most of you, Randy Lockley, we tend to worship the millions of dollars and probably get sidetracked. God says, trust me, I give you what I want you to have in varying degrees, and then how are you going to manage it? What I want to share with you today is far beyond that. And this is what God impressed upon me sitting in my little office this week, spending the time getting ready to share this with you. It's really been over a couple of weeks. Look at the top of your outline, God's indescribable gift. We ended up with this verse last week, 2 Corinthians 9:15. It's kind of what led me into doing this. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. His indescribable gift. And so when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what we're going to look at today, the context of 2 Corinthians 4 is that the apostle Paul is talking about his own life and his own ministry, and, he's, and, and in conjunction with those that traveled with him and those that he had been discipling, and as the apostle to the Gentiles, he wants to share with them his heart. He wants them to see, I want you to look, Paul is saying, I want you to look at me and understand I want to be an example. I want to be a living witness of what it means to know that God has said, I want you. That God was willing to take me, Saul of Tarsus, and allow me this unbelievable opportunity and privilege to take the story of the indescribable gift to the Gentile world. And in the process, also to many Jews. It was an awesome privilege, and he wanted to share it with them. And so the theme of this, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, starts out, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. He starts out by saying that in verse 1, and then flip over and look at verse 16 as he wraps it up. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Now, in between those two, I want us to look at what he says. We do not lose heart. Why? And three times in verse 1 and verse 7 and in a different way in Greek in verse 13, he says this phrase, we have this. We have this. He's talking about the privilege that's been given to him, the opportunity, what God has endowed him with, both as a believer first, but then as an apostle. So as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and as he shares his heart, there's two things I want you to take away from this. Number one, I want to share my heart with you as Randy Lockley, pastor of this campus, privileged by God to lead. Many of you, week after week, you come, and, and I don't know why, but you come and you listen to what I have to say. And I, want to, I hope that you hear from God. That's what Paul was reminding them. I want you to hear from God. But beyond that, I want you to understand that every one of you, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, according to Scripture, you are a priest. The theological term that's been used through, down through the years is believer, priest. Every Christian is a priest. We represent God to people, and we take people to God through prayer and through sharing the gospel. Every believer is a priest. Now, there are those of us that are called to be pastor teachers. And we have a privilege, we have a responsibility, and God takes it very serious, as we're going to see, to make sure that we understand who we are. So I want to begin to walk through what Paul shares with himself about himself. Number one, he says, we have this privileged ministry in the first six verses. Verse one again, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we, Paul and others, have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, I want you to notice in context what this ministry is he's talking about. So look for a moment back in chapter 3 at verse 2. Now, he's talking about the believers at Corinth. And he says to them, You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 3. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 6. He's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ. Not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's saying, as we begin to walk through this, this privileged ministry that we have is to share with you the new covenant, what the blood of Jesus Christ will do for you, what the body of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has made available to you. His blood offers forgiveness of sins. His body offers you redemption eternally. He said, we've been given this ministry that we get to share with you. We get to see you come to Christ. And then we get to look at you and say, that's an epistle. Christ through us has been able to write on your hearts, a new covenant, not a stone one, not a letter of a law that just drives people crazy, not religion, but freedom, liberty in Jesus Christ. Now, and as I was going through this this week, I was thinking back over all the years and how many people God had given me the privilege to sit down and look them in the eye and tell them, Jesus died for you. 
How many people had sat in classrooms, God had given me the privilege to open the word of God and to say to them, thus says the Lord. How many people God had allowed me to pray with and see their lives change? How many seeds he had given me the privilege of planting? And, you know, I won't know. And that's, I, I want to make sure that you, you get this, please. It is not about Randy Lockley. But I do know that one day I will die and I get to go to heaven and I get to see Jesus Christ face to face. And I get to spend eternity with people that I was able to share Jesus with on this life. A great theologian once said, I don't even know who it was, and I wish I did, because it impacted me greatly. And I remember the first time I heard it, read it. He said, there are only two things in this life that you can encounter that you will see in the next life. The Word of God and people. The Word of God and people. And so focus your life on that. See, that's what a pastor teacher is. He pours himself into the Word of God, and in prayer, he gets the Word of God into him, and then he shares it hopefully equipping you for the work of ministry. So Paul says we have this ministry, this privileged ministry. And so the first thing he wants them to understand is that for him and for us, I'm not a quitter. I will not quit no matter what happens. Verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have this ministry, and this, and we read the context of it, and in Greek it's unique, it means this kind this kind of ministry. In chapter 3, he tells us it's a ministry that changes people's lives. Talked about this as we were looking at giving over the last few weeks. Why is it so important that we give to the kingdom's work? Because what the kingdom is about lasts forever. Everything else is temporary. Father, we have the slide for 1 Timothy. Did we get that? Can we put that up there? Do we have that? If not, I can just read it. All right, it may pop up there. It may not. I'm going to read to you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Just listen, please. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. Paul's writing about himself to Timothy, his son in the flesh, the son in the spirit, excuse me. I thank Christ, our Lord, who has enabled me because he has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You have to remember where Saul of Tarsus came from. He was the persecutor of anyone who followed Jesus Christ. It was his job to imprison them, to persecute them as much as he could. And he said, Jesus called me. He called me. He's considered me, counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, the honor and glory forever and ever. Here's what he's saying. Let me sum it up for you. He's saying this. Jesus saved me. He could save anybody. I didn't deserve it. I was his number one enemy, and he appeared to me on the road to Damascus, and he said, Saul, I'm choosing you. His number one enemy, I want to save you. And he says, I had the, he, he, he redeemed me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and he gave me this incredible ministry. I was reading about different preachers this week and things that they had said to them, and this, this Scottish preacher from years ago was preaching to other preachers, and he said this to them, quote, Never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne of God envy you, your great work. And that was Alexander White. The angels around the throne. You see, being able to stand before people and say, this is what Jesus offers to you. 
And I've said it many times, and I believe it with all my heart. The highest call any human being can have on their life is not to be president of the United States. It's not to be ambassador to another country. It is to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. We're called that by the Apostle Paul. To this very church at Corinth, he wrote those words. You are an ambassador. Given the word of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation, now go. So Paul says, I'm not a quitter. Jesus gave me this opportunity. I will finish it. Secondly, verse 2, not a deceiver. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Not a deceiver. He says, I've li and he talks about it many times. He says, I will live the godly life. I want to preach the truth. I have nothing to hide, no deceit. I want to be an open book. That's my prayer. That should be your prayer. But one who is a leader in the church, that should always be our prayer, to preach the truth, to live the truth, and there's nothing in my life that I have to worry about somebody uncovering. No deceit. Not taking the word of God and twisting it to get you to do what I want you to do. No false teaching. Simply honest, open, preaching the full counsel of God. I was thinking I was watching politicians during all these debates, and stuff comes out. As soon as the guy he leaps to the top of the presidential race, one of the, whichever Republican it is, immediately they'll find somebody in his past that's got something they can bring. As a Christian, number one, we're forgiven, and we don't live in the past. But our lives should be open, honest, real. Paul said, that's who I am. Not only me as a living example, but then preaching the word of God truthfully, because truth is what sets you free. Because in verses 3 and 4, there's a lot there, and we're not going to go into it. But here's what he's saying. Satan is really good at what he does. And he is the master of deception. He's the God of this world. He will do everything he can to put a veil or to keep the veil over people's eyes, including religion, including church, and in today's culture, including the, using the term Christianity and ministry. He will use even preachers to stand up. And in another place, he uses the term we get plastic from to make plastic words out of Scripture, to twist it, to mold it, to make it say what you want it to say, to, mo to manipulate people, to motivate them to do what you want them to do, rather than just preaching the truth. And Satan is really good at what he does. And Paul says, so it's incumbent upon me as an apostle, it's incumbent upon Randy as a pastor, and it's incumbent upon you as a believer priest to simply preach the truth of this indescribable gift. No, manip no manipulation, no lying, no twisting, honest gospel. What is it? Not what do I want it to be? Not how can I make you do what I want you to do? What is it? What is it that sets people free? Jesus made it real clear. It's just truth. Third thing he says in verse 5, I'm not a self-promoter. Verse 5, we do not preach ourselves. If you don't think the Bible is relevant, take these verses and turn on the Trinity Broadcasting Network week. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. But Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what he preached. Never me, never us, always Jesus. Ourselves, your bondservants for Jesus' sake. I love this. That verse is so powerful. He says, look, this is what we preach. Two things. Jesus is the Lord, not a Lord, not one of, one of the Lords. He is God. He is the image of God. He just said that. He's, he's the Lord. Greek definite article. There's only one of these. He's unique. He is God. We preach him. And secondarily, wrapped up in that, we're your servant. So when you see somebody preaching and it's about them, you know immediately that's not from God. It's not from God. It's not me. 
I don't have the capacity. There, are, there is no such thing as a guy who God's given the power. He can go up and heal you automatically. God is the only one that can heal somebody. If he chooses to do it, yes, it can be done. But only God can do that. If someone, the focus is on them and it's not, the focus is not on Jesus Christ, then it's not of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught it this way. The Bible reiterates it. If the focus is on the Holy Spirit and not on the person of Jesus Christ, there's something wrong there. And there's a lot of preaching that that's where the focus is. The Holy Spirit drives you to the person of Jesus Christ. If, I, if I'm worshiping a gift as opposed to worshiping Jesus Christ and using the gifts that he gives me through the Holy Spirit, that's wrong. The focus is the person of Christ, not the person delivering the message. He's not a self-promoter. Look at verse 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You ought to write in the margin of your Bible. If you write in the margin of your Bible, you may not. It's interesting how God uses personality and the events and the lives of the writers of Scripture. You can write next to that the road to Damascus and go back and read that story, how Paul was blinded, blinded temporarily by that incredible light and then sent out on the greatest mission God ever sent anybody on. Take the gospel to the world. He was blinded by that light that shone in his life. But in your life and in my life, when I got saved, what happened? The light went on. I got it. I realized that's who Jesus is. That's who I am. I'm a sinner, and he's the light of the world. I'd like to be taken out of darkness into light. And that metaphor is used throughout the Bible, but particularly in the New Testament, about being saved, being taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. John 1, he came. He was the light of men. He himself said later on, I am the light of the world, over and over. We're told in, in the eternal state that what will light new, the new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem, what will enlighten it is the presence of Jesus Christ. No artificial light of any kind, just his being there. He's the light. So when I get saved and the Holy Spirit comes to reside within me, to use the term that was used for years, he saw the light. I get it now. And so what I want is for that light to reflect out, for people to see it in my face, in my personality, in my words, in my life. I should be a lamp reflecting the light within Jesus Christ, not a self-promoter. So secondly, verse 7, what do we have? This is a, this is a very famous passage, but it's amazing. We have a priceless treasure. Now look at it in verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. We have this priceless treasure. I love this picture. Maybe somebody can enlighten me in just a moment. I'm going to ask you. First thing we need to understand is that we're God's pots. We are God's pots. The term earthen vessel, the literal Greek there means jars of clay. Someone who lightens me is the Christian group, jars of clay. Did they get their name from this verse? Yes, no, anybody know? I think they probably did. The Greek term for earthen vessel means jars of clay. That's who we are. I want to make sure you see this metaphor because it's so important. These jars of clay that he's talking about in the Greek term, they were used for them to dispose of garbage and human waste. That's what they did with them. Because here's what he wants to make sure we understand. He takes the most valuable thing the universe has ever known, the message of the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit that changes lives, and he puts it in pots like us. Earthen vessels 
within which he places this incredible, priceless treasure. Please get this metaphor, and, and this is, if you don't get anything else, I normally say, get this. Notice what he says, we're hard-pressed, we're perplexed. Look at the terms that are used there in those verses again. We're not crushed, we're not in despair, we're not forsaken, we're not destroyed. We have this treasure. You see the power of God, verse 7, the power of God. Because it goes in our lives, here's what he does. The excellence of the power of God is of God, not of us. He said this about Saul of Tarsus, Jesus did. He said, I want you to go meet with Saul. He is my chosen vessel to bear my name. You see, the idea of earthen vessels is this. When, when an earthen vessel is cracked, what's within it spills out. If it's pressed, what's within it might come out. And he's saying, we placed inside you the most priceless treasure man has ever known. And when you're crushed, it's going to spill out on those around. When you're, when you're pressed down, it's going to spill out on those around. Because what's in us comes out in tough times. So if I understand that within me as a believer in Jesus Christ is the most priceless treasure God has ever allowed man to know, the message of the gospel and the presence of God, when I am in a difficult circumstance, hopefully God in me, the hope of glory, will reflect out on those around. They'll see how I handle it. The focus is on the treasure within, not on the vessel. Remember the story of Aladdin's lamp? In all the different versions you've seen, somebody just finds a, an old lamp. They don't think it's worth anything. And for some reason, they rub the lamp, and suddenly they have a genie, and they have wishes. It's not the lamp that was of great value. What was it? What was within? You see, what I, the Bible describes our bodies as a tent. In one place, it's described a, as uh, ashes, dust. One day, Randy will die, and Randy will be placed in a grave. This will rot. But the value that God uses within the earthen vessel that is Randy Lockley will spend eternity in paradise. Who you are is on the inside. You bear it in an earthen vessel, but the priceless treasure is what is within. So when I'm pressed down, when I'm perplexed, when I'm attacked, what comes out? Hopefully the priceless treasure comes out because I am a believer, priest. Does the, does the glory of God, is he, is he magnified or is it about me? When you get jarred, when you get cracked, when you get bumped, what comes out? Verse 10, we are God's priests, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Verse, these verses, and again, we won't have time to go through it in great detail, but basically what's going on here is a series of paradoxes. To illustrate one great point, the death of Jesus Christ makes life in my body worthwhile. That the life that is Jesus Christ makes my death worthwhile because I get to go be with him. The paradox of his life, he had to die so that I could live. I die to self so that I can live to him both now and forever. He died to give me life. I died to life so I can share his life with others. He uses a series of paradoxes. We get the privilege of representing him. I want you to notice, I put it on your outline. It's my favorite illustration of this principle, John the Baptist. John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, Jesus Christ, that all through him might believe. He was not that light. Jesus Christ, but he was sent to bear witness of that life. 
In other words, to be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work, Paul said to Timothy in another place. So here's the idea of the, the illustration of John the Baptist. Make sure you get it. He comes in and he describes himself. I am a lamp. I alluded to this a moment ago, but I want to make sure you get this illustration because it really helps me. I am a lamp. How many of you have a lamp in your house? Probably have a lamp by your favorite chair. It's just a lamp. Most of the day, it sits there and does what? When the lamp, when you want the, to use the lamp, what do you do? You turn it on, and then it becomes worthwhile because what do you, what does the lamp refract then? What is it light that's in there? It just needs the power. You reach over to turn it on, and suddenly things around it are illuminated. John the Baptist is saying, understand, and he had people flocking to him like crazy. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't even, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am a lamp. I came to reflect the light. He is the light. I'm a lamp. Boy, that helps me because that's what I am in this earthen vessel. I'm a lamp, but within me is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And I want that power to be reflected all the time. I want to be a lamp that's useful. That's what Christmas is all about. What's the indescribable gift that God has placed that treasure within me and given me the privilege of sharing that light with the world? So finally, you come to number three. As a result of what I have, that priceless treasure, this incredible ministry, this privilege, I have persevering faith. We said earlier, Paul said, I'm not a quitter. So notice how he wraps this up, verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, by the way, that spirit is not talking about the Holy Spirit. That little word spirit there is talking about attitude. I have an attitude of faith. We do. We have the same attitude of faith according to what is written. I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised, Jesus, raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are seen, which are not seen, are eternal. I want you to go back to verse 15 for a moment, because here's the real focus of what he's trying to get across. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Quickly, he's confident of the power of God. In verse 14. We have its attitude because we're confident of the power of God. We have an attitude of faith. God will raise us up just like he raised Jesus up, that power. We're also confident of the glory of God's glory. And this is the idea of being worshipful. And here's where I want us to focus for just a second because this is what ministry is. He's saying everything I do, everything we do, those that were with him and the believers that traveled with him on his missionary journeys, and I want to share with you as a pastor's heart, everything I do and hopefully we do as leaders and hopefully you do as believers is for other people. He's saying if the grace of God has been poured out on me, I want it to be poured out on you so it will be poured out on others as those cracked vessels, what God has done in our lives, will spill out over others as a lamp that's reflecting that light out on others. And here's what will happen. Verse 15 is the key to this whole thing. As I share Jesus and as I live Jesus and it impacts other people, that's what true gratitude is for this indescribable gift. 
and God is glorified as we share, share that gratitude toward him with others. The grace that God shows me, the grace that God shows you, we share that with other people and they realize that's what Christianity is all about. It's not a set of do's and don'ts. It's not a bunch of rules. It's grace, which leads to gratitude, which leads to glorifying God. That's his whole focus. All things. He's talking about everything he had to suffer. If you get a chance this week, go read how he suffered physically. And he's saying, everything I go through is so the grace of God can abound in your life. And it's an honor and a privilege for me to be able to do that. And in verse 16, he said, I'm just simply confident of the renewal of God that he'll do it. And in the last thing he says in verse 17 and 18, is, I'm confident of God's eternality, that it's forever. I don't want to get my eyes focused on this life without focusing them first on the eternal life, which gives me the right perspective. That's why Romans 8:28 there on your outline is true. We know that all things work together for good to those who lo love God, and that's even the hard things, the difficult things. God is working good because we are those he's called according to his purpose. So you notice the bottom of your outline. He ends and he begins with, therefore, we do not lose heart. Most of you know who Helen Keller is, and you've heard her story. Not only was she deaf and blind, Helen Keller was a devout believer in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine for a moment being blind, how much we need our eyes, and then also being deaf? I want, you, I want to read you a quote from Helen Keller. She was talking about she toured the world to promote education of the person, people like her who were disabled like she was. Quote, three things I thank God, for, for three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he's given me knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set my, in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly song. Imagine never being able to see a flower. Never being able to see your children or your grandchildren or other people. You see her heart, her attitude was, it's about another life. I'll tell you one quick story and then we're going to pray because I think it helps us understand our perspective. Several years ago, I don't remember which Olympics it was. It's within the last 20 years. It was one of the Summer Olympic Games. And one of the events in the Summer Olympic Games is the marathon, 26.5 miles, I guess it is. And, and I remember watching it years ago, and you see that, you know, the one guy, they got, whoever runs marathons are always like skin and bones. You just, if you run a marathon, that's what you end up being. But anyway, the guy, that, whoever wins it, it's an incredible feat. So during this Olympics, it's the, so they have, the mar they have the marathon during the event, and the guy comes in and wins it, and the crowd's cheering. And, and so the, the marathon is over. Everybody's right within, certain, close to it, it's finished, it's over. So they continue with the Olympic Games for an hour. Other events are now going on in the track and field arena where they end up. Another hour goes by. Several hours later, another guy comes running in. He was in the marathon. He's all bloodied. He'd fallen down and gotten hurt. He could barely move. This was several hours after the winner had crossed the finish line. And he runs through. Suddenly the crowd realizes who he is, and they begin to cheer for him and clap. He crosses the finish line. Hours and hours after the marathon was over, he finally finishes. And they ask him, he said, why, did, why didn't you give up? Why did you finish? And he said, my country didn't send me 7,000 miles from Tanzania to quit. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish. Jesus Christ didn't save you to quit. He saved you to finish. By looking at him, the author and finisher of your faith, he put you in the race, and he'll be at the tape waiting when it's over. What he says in the interim is, I've given you an indescribable gift. It's in you. Let it shine and share it. That's what Christmas is. Would you bow your heads, please?
Father, we thank you for the indescribable gift, the pearl of great price, the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ changes lives. It's not religion, not a set of do's and don'ts, not turning over a new leaf, but it's realizing I'm desperately in need of a Savior. I'm lost, and Jesus died in my place. So, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas as individuals, as a group, as a church, as the church, I pray throughout the world, I pray particularly for us as individuals and as a group, that we would glorify Jesus Christ, share the indescribable gift of who he is and what he's done and what he will do, that we can share that with our world. Lord, I just pray this morning as we close out our time together, if there's somebody here who does not know Jesus, they will say, Lord, thank you for dying in my place for that indescribable gift. Please save me. I want to share that with other people. For those of us that are saved, we would be motivated to live and excitedly share the indescribable gift. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand as we sing.